0: everyone. This is Tony Dow, and welcome to another episode of the OCPHA Podcast. Today, we actually have a special guest, Dr. Timothy Elbrick, a co-founder of Your Financial Pharmacist, and we'll be talking about what you can do in your finances uh, as a pharmacist. So thank you so much for being on the podcast. How are you doing today?
1: Good. Thank you so much for having me, Tony.
0: Yeah, yeah, of course. And, you know, just before we get into that whole strategy talk and, you know, things like um, IRAs and uh, how to pay off student loans, uh, just before that... Can you kind of give the listeners a little bit more about yourself?
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll be brief in, in this background, but I think it's relevant to our, our discussion. So I appreciate the opportunity. So uh, I went to pharmacy school at Ohio Northern University in a small rural town in Ohio, did a zero six direct entry PharmD program, accrued a lot of student loan debt along the way to private institution. And we'll we'll talk more about that when we talk about student loan repayment strategies and uh, then after graduating, completed a P2I1 and community ambulatory care residency uh, in 2009 and have really been in the academic environment ever, ever since then. So I, I found myself through patient care experiences and enjoying that but really loving the teaching side of things, the working with students, the career development, uh, more of the academic side. So I've been in various academic administrative roles. Uh, Most currently, uh, I'm the program director for the MS in health system pharmacy administration at the Ohio State University College of Pharmacy, but have been in various academic roles uh, for the past 12 years. And alongside of that, I'm the co-founder and CEO of Your Financial Pharmacist. Uh, And really, our our mission is to help as many pharmacy professionals as we can on their path towards achieving financial freedom. And we do that through weekly podcasts, our blog, our online community, as well as comprehensive financial planning services. So we'll talk more, I'm sure, about that as, as we talk about student loans and other topics here on this recording.
0: Yeah, that's that's really cool. So actually, before we get into that, how did you get started with the your financial pharmacist? Like, was there what was a motivating factor about like why you started the the your financial pharmacist?
1: Yeah, I'm I'm glad you asked that, Tony. Actually, just this week I was reflecting back on that. So getting getting ready to celebrate the fifth anniversary of, of YFP, which you know isn't a ton of years, but w- when you're in the weeds developing something, it really is significant and, and means a lot to us and the and the work that we're doing at YFP. So really, really in short. You know, I I had gone as I as I mentioned, gone through a journey of accruing a lot of debt, and ultimately had went through a journey of paying off a lot of debt, about two hundred thousand dollars that my wife and I worked through post residency. And you know, if I were to say two hundred thousand dollars of student loan debt to any other group besides a group of pharmacy professionals, that would probably evoke some emotional reaction of oh my gosh, that's, that's a lot of money. But that's, as we know, all too normal in, in our profession. Here we are, class of 2020 has a, a median student debt load of about $175,000. So it really is the norm these days. And as I went through that journey, I made several mistakes along the way. Uh Some things I certainly wish I would have done differently. I really didn't have a good understanding of my student loans. I didn't understand you know, what, what did it mean that a loan was unsubsidized? What were the repayment options available? What was loan forgiveness? How do I balance this with investing and home buying and all the other Things that are often, you know, facing new practitioners as they make this challenge. And I remember finally getting to the end of that journey, October 2015, when we hit submit on that last payment of debt and thinking to myself, my gosh, there just has to be a better way to go through this. And as I started talking with more and more pharmacists, I kept hearing the same things over and over again. And that really was along the lines of, you know what, I'm making a great income. I'm making a six figure income, but I don't feel like I'm progressing financially as fast as I would like to. Or, you know, I've got this great income, but I I really feel like I'm living paycheck to paycheck because of these student loans and all these other competing responsibilities. And as I kept hearing that over and over again, you know, I said, we need a community of pharmacy professionals that can come around one another and that we can teach this topic of personal finance, which many of us don't have a good background in for a variety of reasons. And we need to create a platform where we can educate on this topic, but through the lens of a pharmacist and somebody who has gone through this journey. And so I had reached out, Tony, to a hundred of my peers and colleagues a month after I finished Paying off that debt. And I said, Hey, I'm thinking about starting a blog on personal finance for pharmacy professionals. What, what do you think, and would you be interested in receiving that? And the response I got back from that was all the motivation I needed to get started. You know, most people responded and most that did respond were responding with enthusiasm. And that really became the initial following of the blog. And from there, you know, it it kind of affirmed itself over time. And, and folks were sharing stories and, you know, providing me with input and ideas. And, and it really became this vibe of a community committed to helping pharmacists on their path towards achieving financial freedom. So from there, uh, I wrote a book, Seven Figure Pharmacists with Tim Church. Um, I then uh, started the, the YFP podcast with Tim Baker, who's our, our lead certified financial planner, and it kind of took a life of its own from there. But that was really the beginning and the, and the start of YFP uh, back in, in fall of 2015. That's
0: really cool. That's an awesome journey. I'm really uh, glad that, you know, you're able to um, be on the podcast today to share some of the, some of the financial tips and advice. And, you know, just thank you for, thank you for doing that. And, uh, we did have some requests from, for our members and I guess it's just broken down to two topics. So the first topic that our members actually was very curious about um, was, uh, you know, are there any kind of investment recommendations like uh, Roth IRA versus traditional IRA? What's the difference of that? Are there any recommendations of stocks and bonds? And I guess how should pharmacists start or when should they start uh, on uh, on investing?
1: Great, great question, Sony. And I'm going to kind of do a mini course here in investing and, and feel free to ask follow up questions. And I hope if, if nothing else, this will just stimulate some interest among the listeners to go out and learn more on this topic. And, and you know, really, really one of the things that, that I say often when teaching on this topic is that you never want to look at your any part of your financial plan in a silo. And what I mean by that is everyone listening likely has many competing financial priorities right? It could be long-term savings. It could be student loan debt repayment. It could be home buying goals. It could be goals related to family. You know, the list goes on and on. We have many things that are competing for the limited resource, which is our income. And if you look at any decision, whether it's investing here is the question or it's, you know, should I refinance my home or what should I do with my student loans? If you directly just answer that one question, the answer is it really depends in the context of the rest of the financial plan. And what, what I mean by that is if somebody decides to aggressively invest early and therefore use a significant chunk of their take-home pay to do that, that may or may not be a great move depending on what else their financial situation looks like. So do they have an emergency fund? Do they have a credit card debt? What's their goals around retirement? What's their student loan debt? look like in terms of the amount, in terms of the interest rate, you know, what's their goals and aspirations around home buying and start starting a family and all these other things that compete for this resource. So I'm going to answer the question. We'll we'll talk about IRAs and 401ks and HSAs and all those, you know, fancy investing terms, but before anybody, you know, makes a decision to go open an IRA or go contribute more in their 401k or do whatever, as we talk about student loans as well, please take a step back to say, what's the goal, what's the purpose, what's the vision. And I think that's really where where having a coach and an accountability partner can help you see this objectively. When often this topic may not be very objective, right? It, it often is emotional, and as it, it Remit said, he says in his book, "I will teach you to be rich," one of my favorite personal finance books. He really makes a case that we, as the individual, our human behavior can be the biggest barrier to us actually achieving our financial goals. And what he's saying there is that we need to get out of our way because we often make irrational decisions and we need to have systems in place and automation in place that allows us to effectively achieve our financial goals without our own irrational behaviors getting into play. So when it comes to, you know, the textbook answer on investing, should I be investing early? Yes. Right. You know, I, in an ideal situation, if there's no competing financial responsibilities, you want to be investing as early and as often as you want. And that's because of the power of compound interest, right? So if you put away $1,000 today, whether that's in a Roth IRA, whether that's in a 401k, a 403b, a TSP for those that work for the federal government, whether it's in a brokerage account, whatever it be, history will show us that if you account for that money being invested into the stock market that you can, you know, safely assume, depending on the portfolio makeup that you have somewhere around a average annual return of six to 7%. And that of course is counting for inflation that would happen along the way. Now that means one year, you know, you you might be up 30%, you might be down 30%. and, And we know that the stock market doesn't work on a nice average annual rate of return. And so there's certain questions around volatility and risk tolerance and What's the goal? How much are we trying to save? What's the timeline? And all of those answers will influence how much you're saving, how you're balancing that with other goals, and in which vehicles you are saving, whether that's a Roth, a traditional, a 401k, an HSA, a brokerage account, real estate, all the different options you have for investing. So we need to take a step back and say, when it comes to investing, what is the goal? What are we trying to do, right? Because we know that compound interest tells us if we put money away at the age of 25, Instead of waiting to 30, that's going to compound and grow at a significant rate just because of how the math works on this. And you can run numbers using a simple savings calculator and see really the power of compound interest. But here's the thing, Tony. If I talk to two pharmacists, one may say, you know what, Tim, I have a goal of early retirement. I want to be financially independent by the age of 50, and I want to have a choice to work or work part-time or do whatever, start my own business. And I don't want to have to depend on my paycheck anymore as my only source of income. Now, if that's pharmacist A and pharmacist B says to me, you know what, Tim, I really love what I do. Um, I love the environment I'm in. I, I love the patients that I serve. And I really see myself doing this until, you know, a traditional retirement age, quote, traditional retirement to the age of, let's say, 65 or 70. Well, th- th- those two individuals are going to need very different things in terms of their nest egg, how much they need, as well as where they will save it, right? Because the person who's who's after an earlier age of financial independence, you don't want to necessarily have all of those monies tied up into traditional retirement accounts where you cannot access those before the age of 59 and a half without incurring a 10% penalty and on the taxable, uh, accounts like a 401k or a 403b that you're also going to incur income tax on those. So, you know, where you put those really matters. So short answer is, should you be investing early and often? Yes. Real answer is it depends on what we're trying to accomplish in terms of how much. Now, when it comes to the vehicles, you know, Tony, I know, I know the question mentioned an IRA, and I just really want to break down a few different buckets as it relates to retirement savings. So when you hear the term IRA, remember that the I stands for individual, and that is different than an employer-sponsored account, which would be a 401k, a 403b, or a TSP for those that are working with the federal government. In those accounts, 401k, 403b, TSP all functionally work the same in that the monies you contribute today are reducing your taxable income. So you're not paying tax on that money that's contributed today. It's growing. And then when you go to pull it out after the age of 59 and a half without penalty, then when you pull it out, you're going to pay taxes on the amount that you pay, pay out, right? Because you didn't pay them upfront. And so if you have $2 million saved in a 401k and you start to withdraw that money at the age of 65, at that point, you're going to start paying your, your tax bill on that money that's due. Now, when we say IRA, again, I stands for individual. So these have nothing to do with an employer-sponsored account. So you can set up an individual account. You could work with a planner to do it. You could open up your own account, going to the Vanguard or Schwab or TE or any of these types of custodians to do it or these brokers. Um, And you can open up and you can contribute up to $6,000 per year in an IRA or a Roth IRA. Now, the differentiation between the two of those is that it has to depend on whether or not you are eligible from an income standpoint. Uh, and then an IRA functionally tax-wise works like a 401k or a 403b. Money you put in today, you're deferring taxes. It's growing, and then money you take out, you pay taxes on. Where a Roth IRA, money you put in today, you already pay taxes on the money that's put in. So it's after-tax money you put in. It grows, and then whatever you pull out, you're pulling out tax-free because you've already paid those taxes at the beginning. So. And you can look up and and we can link perhaps in the show notes to some IRS uh, tables of income. I don't think we need to get into the weeds on it here. But depending on how much you make, depending on if it's an individual versus married filed jointly, you may or may not be able to contribute. To a traditional IRA or a Roth IRA, you might have to do what's called a backdoor Roth IRA, which is a uh, legal mechanism, essentially a loophole in the tax code that allows you to reap the benefits of a Roth, but through a a roundabout way if you exceed the income limits for a a normal Roth contribution. So there's really this question of the vehicles that are available. We've only talked about a couple. We haven't even talked in detail about others, HSAs, real estate, brokerage accounts. And so you want to start with what's the goal, what's the purpose, what am I trying to achieve? And then you back into what are the vehicles. And then within those vehicles, Tony is where the actual investment lives, the stocks, the bonds, the mutual funds, the REITs, uh, you know, the index funds. And so when people say, you know, and I say, Hey, are you investing in stocks or bonds? And they're like, yeah, I'm putting money in my 401k. That is just the tax umbrella. Think about that. 401k is almost like the capsule and then inside the beads or the active medication are the actual investments themselves. So, this is where you would choose okay, how much am I putting in stocks? How much am I putting in bonds? How much am I putting in real estate trusts? How am I putting them in, in natural resources or other types of investments? And then within those categories, for example, stocks, you're looking at domestic, international big companies, small companies, aggressive growth, you know, all of those different variables that really get to the point of asset allocation. So long winded answer, Tony, but I think it's important that folks are really taking a step back to say, what's the purpose? What's the vision? And then going into once you know where you're going, starting to look at the individual vehicles to determine which of those would fit best with your long term goals.
0: Yeah, you know, that's a really good breakdown. I I didn't even think about like breaking it down to the goals and then the vehicles and then the actual um, investments. I think like there's a uh, like when I hear about it, when people are talking to me about it, I don't really make that division between the vehicle versus the actual investment. So it's a good mm. thing that you brought it up. It kind of just also, even just for me, like it, it made me rethink about that too.
1: And Tony, if I could give one example on that real quick is, you know, the first step is contributing. So often folks will say, Hey Tim, I'm, I'm contributing 15% of my income to my 401k. That's great. That's, that's a huge step, right? The second step is, is you got to understand where that money is going inside of the 401k. So remember the capsule and the beads, right? The 401k is the capsule, the beads are the actual investments themselves. So after you really, you know, kind of get a better idea of where you're going, you do your risk tolerance, you understand the the potential risks, the potential benefits, then you're choosing you know, am I putting my monies in stocks and bonds at what percentage is that going to change over time? And that piece often gets missed where folks are like, uh, I don't know where my money is. And the reason that's important is that if you're, for, for example, if somebody's in a very conservative portfolio and they don't realize they're in a very conservative portfolio and they have an aggressive savings goal for quote, early retirement or financial independence, that savings allocation may not meet your goal or vice versa. If somebody says, you know what, I really don't like the stomach of of the market and what happened this year with COVID-19, and then their portfolio is they're 100% in stocks, well, that, that might not be a good thing, right, in terms of their, long, their long-term goals. So really making sure folks are not only taking that first step to contribute, but then also really understanding within that tax advantage retirement vehicle where that money is actually going.
0: Yeah. And I, I guess like before we move on to the next question, I did want to ask about the, the IRA part. So, uh, you know, like for our 401ks, 403bs, there, are, there is that penalty of like, you know, you can't take it beyond, before a certain age. Um, is there something like that with IRAs?
1: There are. So, uh, sim- similarly, like with the, let's use a Roth IRA as an example. If you take uh, money out of a Roth IRA before the age of 59 and a half, so same age, you don't have to pay taxes because you already pay taxes on the money going in, but you would incur a 10% penalty. Now the key here to remember with a Roth IRA is that you can pull your contributions out of a Roth IRA at any point without taxes, because again, you pay taxes, but also without that penalty because it's your contributions and you've already paid taxes. So the part that is subject to penalty would be the growth on the account, which for, for the listeners who have, have, uh, read or learned anything on investing, what you'll notice is as time goes on in your portfolio, after you're saving 10, 20, 30 years, most of your portfolio will actually be growth compared to your contributions. So a little bit more nuanced, Tony, but yes, with, with, with the IRA, there is that age, but with the Roth IRA specifically, it has that unique advantage that you can pull your contributions out before 59 and a half tax-free without penalty because of your contributions. Now the growth, um, you can, you can pull out, but you're going to pay a 10% penalty or you wait until after the age of 59 and a half. There are some exceptions to that around first time home buying, um, around education, some other things. So I, I always like to think of the Roth, Um, almost as like a backup emergency fund, not, not in place of an emergency fund. I think it's always good to have three to six months of, of liquid cash or equivalent available for emergencies that will inevitably happen. But the Roth IRA, because it's got some of that flexibility that you don't see in a 401k and it's got some other advantages as well, in terms of not having the required minimum distributions, uh, and some other things, but that you have an opportunity to access funds, uh, it especially your contributions in the event that you would need it obviously the goal is not to draw but if you had to that they would be there
0: wow that's really cool i I didn't know about that that's uh i I was always confused about like that that nuance of like the the age uh in which you can actually take it without penalty but uh, yeah the roth ira i did not know that i mean i knew that you know i knew the contributions are your own but i didn't know that you can actually take them out without that penalty the traditional ira it's overall
1: penalized right so in the traditional IRA, because you're not putting in any of, of post-tax dollars, anything that you draw before the age of 59 and a half would be subject to tax as well as the penalty. So it's different because of the how the tax feature works on those. Okay. Okay, cool. Thanks for explaining yeah, that. Yeah. Most pharmacists, Tony, because of their income, won't be able to contribute to a traditional IRA. Usually what they're looking at is a Roth or a backdoor Roth IRA. So again, depends on income, household, family situation, all those factors. But for, for most pharmacists, you know, they're going to be looking at their employer-responsored vehicle, like a 401k, 403b, and then they're probably also going to be leveraging a Roth IRA and potentially an HSA if they work for an employer that has a high-deductible health plan. I
0: see. I see. So, so you know, like, these are strategies for um, just anybody, for, you know, pharmacists, uh, pharmacy students, uh, anybody, but, okay. but like, you know, going into pharmacy students and going back to what you talked about when you, uh, you graduate and incur that amount of debt. Uh, one of the other uh, requests from our membership was, I guess, how would one deal with student loans and how would they budget and strategize in terms of paying them off?
1: Yeah, this is a great question and probably something that we could talk about at, at length. And and I would start this here like I did on the investing response. You really want to spend some time first asking yourself a couple questions. You know, of course, you want to know what's your total debt load. You want to know what your interest rates are you want to understand your repayment options and your plans. And and this in and of itself is a task because there's so many options that are available. And you also want to ask yourself some non, what I call non-monetary questions, things like, how do I feel about the debt? There's no right or wrong answer. So really being honest with yourself, you know, some, some pharmacists I talk to, some students I talk to say, Hey, you know what, Tim, I don't care what the interest rate is. These loans are stressing me out and I want them gone. Other pharmacists may say, you know what? I could, I could get my loans refinanced down to, you know, whatever, three, 3%, 4%. And, um, you know, I want to, uh, do some other things with my monthly cash flow. And so I'm kind of looking at these like I would a 20 or 30 year mortgage. You're just going to be here for a while. And again, there's, there's no right answer to that question, but I think we often forget to ask those important questions. And for those of you that are in a relationship with a significant other, making sure you're, you're hearing both sides of that answer represented because both opinions are, are obviously really important in this conversation. So I think really understanding the construct of your loans is critically, critically important, Tony. What I mean by that, you know, I, I do a session with students often called the anatomy of a student loan. And often what, what I find is folks just don't have a good understanding, like, like I did not, in terms of understanding the construct of the loan. So what is the type of loan? You know, Obviously, you've got federal or private, but within federal, you have different types of loans. You have subsidized, you have unsubsidized, you have fell loans, you have Perkins loans, you have direct loans, you have parent plus loans. And each of those are, are different in terms of the their makeup, in terms of their interest rates, in terms of how they function. So really understanding what that means in terms of interest that's accruing for those that are in, student, in school that are listening, um, as well as those that are in active repayment to understand strategy around repayment. And so the, the one thing that we talk a lot about is once you understand your loans, and we, we teach what's called an inventory, where you make sure you have a good understanding of all of your individual loans, federal and private. And then from there, what you do is you move into your actual monthly budgeting process. So we have to know before we choose a student loan repayment strategy. And that's our goal, right? We're trying to get the one best option. We have to understand what we have available each and every month in terms of cash flow. So if somebody were to say to me, Hey Tim, what, what, what I have $200,000 of debt, it's 6.2%, you know, average, uh, interest rate. It's all federal. What should I do in terms of repayment? My, my first question to them would be, you know, well, well, tell me more about your monthly budget. What, what do you have available each and every month? And how do you feel about these loans and how aggressive or not aggressive do you want to be? And then the reason that's so important, because what we want to do is ultimately get to a point where we can look at all of the federal options, which includes a standard 10-year repayment. It includes the extended and graduated options that go out to 25 years with fixed monthly payments. It includes all of the income-based repayments. So your listeners have probably heard of repayment plans like pay, P-A-Y-E, pay as you earn or repay. So... Inside the federal system, I I think we're up to nine options now. And then you also have, of course, your private options that are available to you as you go out and shop these out with the private lender with the goal of trying to reduce your your interest rate. So we essentially want to get to a point where we can say, okay, here are all the options. Here's what the monthly payment would be. Here's the total amount I would pay out over the life of the loan, right? Because we don't want to just look at the monthly payment. We want to understand exactly what will come out of pocket. And then when you can look at all that, you lay on top of that your budget to understand what you have available each and every month to pay for those loans. And then obviously how do you feel about the debt and some of the other things that we've talked about? So if somebody says, you know, I only have $400 a month to put towards my student loans. That's going to significantly impact what option we can choose. Where if somebody else says, you know what? These loans are stressing me out. I'm willing to make this cut, that cut, that cut, and I can free up $2,000 a month in my cash flow to put to my student loans. Okay, now we've got some more options to choose from, and we need to evaluate this against other financial goals that they're also trying to work on. So this, like the investing discussion, you don't want to make this decision in a silo. And again, just to reemphasize that point, there's always a trade-off when any financial decision, there is an opportunity cost that comes with every single financial decision. And you just want to evaluate what that opportunity cost is and where you're willing to take that or not. So what I mean by that is if somebody were to say, you know what, I'm going to go all in aggressive student loan repayment. I want these gone in three years and I've got $150,000 of debt. I make $100,000 a year and I'm going to do everything I can to put these in my, in my, uh, toward my student loans. That's great. Uh, and depending on their interest rate and how they feel and other things, that might be the best path forward. But they need to understand also if that means delayed savings or that means delayed something else, there is an opportunity cost that comes with that. And you just have to understand what that cost is and evaluate it. So when it comes to re- repaying student loans, you want to first ask yourself some of those questions How do I feel about the debt? You want to really understand the construct, the anatomy, the makeup of your loans. You want to understand all of your repayment options that are available to you. And then from there, you're trying to get to the one best repayment choice based on your budget, based on how you feel and based on on, on your individual loan situation. And there's a lot to learn here. So my my hope is that somebody should not listen to this and say, all right, I'm good. I feel confident. There's a lot to learn to really understand all of this. Um, In credit here to to Tim Church, he wrote, we've got on the blog, on the YFP blog, um, a great article that really goes, it, it's called The Ultimate Guide to Paying Back Pharmacy School Loans. It goes through step-by-step, step, understanding all the different options available with the goal of trying to educate somebody to, to make that information known and that they feel comfortable in that so they could then translate that to their own personal situation. And so that that article is available at yourfinancialpharmacist.com forward slash ultimate It's there for free, Um, but it goes through step by step. And and again, credit to Tim Church and and really much of his own personal experience that he has woven in throughout this article.
0: Awesome. You know, like what I think is really important is that people understand that this is not a simple answer. And, you know, like, yeah, just asking these questions. uh, These are requested questions from our, our, our membership, but it's not something that can be easily answered in just, you know, one podcast episode or something like that. So, you know, thank you for sharing that. Thank you for emphasizing that. And, Uh, I'll be putting that into our show notes too, so that people can easily uh, link over to it so they can read a little bit more. Um, And I I do want to go over to your financial pharmacist podcast. And uh, I guess I want to ask about like, what kind of things can listeners expect when they follow and listen to your episodes?
1: Yeah, so we really try to cover a a gamut of topics um, to meet you know, the the pharmacist where they are in their journey. And, you know, admittedly, this is a challenge, right? Because this is inherently personal and everybody is at a different point on their own financial journey. So, you know, there certainly is a, is a catalog of episodes available. We've talked a lot about student loans, student loan repayment strategies, multiple episodes. We've talked extensively about topics like home buying. Uh, we've done a lot more recently on real estate investing, on traditional investing. We did a whole series on investing, I think it was episode 72 through 76, uh, kind of meant to be an investing 101. Uh, we have featured several pharmacists, pharmacy entrepreneurs. Those have started their own businesses and side hustles to try to give people ideas there. We've talked about taxes and credit and salary negotiation. So really just many different parts of the financial plan. And, and I always encourage people when they are thinking of the financial plan, especially for those that end up evaluating, uh, to work with a financial planner. I think often we are too narrow in how we are thinking of the financial plan. You know, the areas that often get the most attention are investing in insurance. And that's often because of how the industry is structured, but really a, a good financial plan should be comprehensive in nature. What, what I mean by that is it should cover your goals. It should cover your budget, it should cover student loans and debt management. It should, of course, cover investing, and insurance. It should cover home buying, refinancing. It should cover uh, business and real estate. If those are things that you're working on, it should include credit and credit optimization. It should include uh, you know things like salary negotiation and evaluating employer benefits. It should include end of life, uh, state planning types of things. Anything that has a dollar sign on it, as I mentioned before, any decision you make can impact another part of your plan. So you really want to be thinking about it in a holistic manner.
0: Awesome. And you know, like for people who are interested in learning more or reaching out to you, like what's the best way that they can do that?
1: Yeah. So those that are interested in learning more, you know, yourfinancialpharmacist.com is is our go-to place for our blog, for our podcast. Um. Also for our financial planning services, for those that want to learn uh, more about those as well. If anyone wants to reach out to me individually, probably the easiest way to connect with me would be on LinkedIn, uh, or they could also shoot me an email at info at yourfinancialpharmacist.com.
0: Awesome. So I'll be putting all of that information into the show notes so that everyone can you know, easily just uh, go to our show notes and you'll find the links and uh, uh, contact information to reach out. But you know, to be respectful of your time, I'd like to thank you again so much for taking some time to be on the podcast today.
1: Thank you, Tony. Appreciate it.
0: Alright, if you guys like this episode, please rate us on iTunes, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, or any of your other favorite podcasting services. And you can find out more about our organization by visiting ocpha.org. Or you can follow us on social media through Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. But until next time, OCPHA is signing off, reminding you to get determined, get inspired.